0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub? because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the
1: Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have an absol- absolutely amazing guest with us, uh, David Gushi. Uh, he is a uh, professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University and uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, he's also a senior research fellow at the International Baptist Theological Study Center. That's a
2: mouthful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, in other words, he's a lot smarter than I am. David, welcome to the podcast.
2: Michael, it's it's good to be with you. Thanks for wanting to speak with me.
1: Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. Um, uh, I, I wanted to, you know, highlight what we're going to talk about is your book here, uh, defending democracy from its Christian enemies, and uh, I really like the way uh, it's it's worded here that we're we're really going to be try to try to be advocates for sane, ethical, compassionate politics in a world where many Christians are inst- instigating discord and vying for power. And I would I would add that many Christians are becoming more retributive in their politics and and their worldview and theology. And then finally, we're really our goal really is to get some insight into what democracy is truly meant to be. So, um, thanks for being with us. Uh, I saw you speak at the Wild Goose Festival, and uh, I saw your book, and I've seen your name around a lot. So I'm really glad that I could finally connect with you. Uh, I thought where we would start is to get our audience an understanding of what your background is. Um, uh, The line that I have here, I can actually relate to. I just have to change a couple words, and it's pretty much me. But you became a born-again Southern Baptist evangelical and decades later got kicked out of evangelicalism. I would just change the, for me, I would just take out the word Southern and add the word Baptist and then charismatic uh-huh. <laughs> and everything else is the same, uh, except for our academic, uh, careers. But so how would you summarize that story of you, of, of you, of your evolution?
2: Yeah. Um, I grew up Catholic and, uh, it, it didn't really, uh, I didn't really connect with it very well. My mother, was very disappointed about that, but I went wandering into the spiritual wilderness in high school, and then as a 16-year-old, I had some friends in a local Southern Baptist church, and I, I wandered in there one summer afternoon on my own, and Four days later, I was a, a newly converted Southern Baptist.
1: <laughs> that is so familiar, man. That happened, your, you know. your formative years, especially the teen years or early 20s. It, it's very common.
2: Yeah, 16 years old, I was looking for something I didn't know how to name, and they knew right. how to name it, and there you go, right? So I, I plunged in very deeply into the Southern Baptist subculture, um, felt called to be a pastor within six months. Um, went to Southern Baptist Seminary. got I, I served in Southern Baptist churches. I got ordained as a Southern Baptist minister as a 25-year-old. And wow. then, then I went to um, Union Seminary in New York to get a PhD in Christian ethics, which broadened my horizons. Uh, but still, I've only taught at three schools um, full-time, uh, all of them Baptist, and each one uh, more open-minded than the one before. So I taught at Southern mm-hmm. Baptist Theological Seminary for three years, had to leave there over the issue of women in ministry. Right. And then I went to Union University in West Tennessee for 11 years. Didn't have to leave, but kind of had to over taking stands on issues like climate change and torture.
0: That's, I mean, and- I. I mean,
1: and the, cl- the climate change I get, but taking a stand on torture and you got kicked out?
2: What? Yeah, because it was, a re- it was a Republican president, right? George Uh-oh. W. Bush, right? All oh, that. my gosh. I know. He's that's that's a sad,
1: sad, sad, sad story there.
2: Yeah, it is. And then um, in 2007, Mercer came. Mercer, based in Georgia, came in and gave me an offer I couldn't refuse and gave me academic freedom. And the now for 16 years, I've been pursuing my calling here. And it was um, halfway through that experience that I wrote a book called Changing Our Mind, Mm -hmm. which called for full LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And it ended up uh, being probably the most important book I've written so far. And it's changed lives and helped a lot of people accept themselves and helped a lot of churches change their mind but it helped a lot of evangelicals decide that I was a heretic and that I needed to be kicked out. Yeah, so, that was
1: the last straw. Right. That was the,
2: 2014, <laughs> right. So, since then I've been in post-evangelical space. And right. I've been helping I mean thinking my, on my own and also thinking with post-evangelicals about where we go from here. So, that's kind of yeah. my my journey.
1: Well, yeah. many of us have are on that same journey. You're in good company. Um the, uh, the, the heretics club or whatever we want to call it. (laughs) But uh, really
2: to be in the heretics club, but, but uh, I wear it as a badge of honor at this point in terms of who the adversaries are, you know, I
1: know it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, when I first got into the evangelical church in the late seventies, I mean, there were still some of these issues out there, but it just gets, it's just gotten worse over the years. I just can't believe how political, et cetera, and how, how people can accept things just because you know like torture <laughs> just because it's on the right political side um right. blows me away anyways let's get into one of the terms that you bring up in your book is authoritarian reactionary christianity um where does that come from and is that different from christian nationalism give us a definition of that
2: yeah i made that term up um because i as i was doing the analysis of the problems that we're dealing with, I concluded that it was more descriptive of the problem. So, okay. Um, so, Christian nationalism—it's a religious nationalism—is an old term in the in the literature, having to do with you might say a hyperfusion of religion and uh, nationalism, <coughs> often uh, leading to violence. So that that expression goes back a long way. Um. Uh, The more recent usage of the term Christian nationalism began in the sociology literature around the year 2000 in a book by um, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry called uh, Taking America Back for God. And my reading of the literature that has emerged from that uh, research is essentially what they are describing is the the vision of the kind of country that American, some American Christians would like. So it's a Christian nation that looks white-dominated, patriarchal. Um, uh, the native-born have preeminence. There's a, there's a xenophobia, anti-immigrant posture, mm-hmm. um, uh, anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ, um, uh, and essentially a, a third You know, kind of a backward-looking. Um, uh, make America great again here means make America a white, conservative, straight, male, Christian dominated country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So I think that's all true. I think that is essentially the goal of a lot of people that I'm also talking about. But here's what what I think the language in my book adds. Reactionary um, names the The spirit of fierce counterattack, counterrevolution, negative reaction to social changes that conservative and traditional Christians don't like. And an easy way to think about it is think about everything that has changed in our culture since about 1962. And then and then think about people who are against all of those changes. Right, 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 right. Maybe some more changes are more important to them than others it might be about ethnicity or it might be about gender or it might be about abortion might be about sexuality uh might be about immigration but but a fierce negative counter-reaction um draped in the flag and also draped in christianity right Mm -hmm. um and then authoritarianism names uh an anti-democratic Uh, approach to power with it with it tends to support the centralization of power in the hands of um a few people who are understood to be worthy of it
1: right right
2: um and and so the book makes a pretty careful argument about how there's a lot of authoritarianism just in conservative and traditional religion anyway right you know um and that doesn't matter that much most of the time except to those who are in those systems that are never allowed to raise a question or to have a voice. Mm-hmm. But, but where it's mattering politically is if those folks get activated um, to be opposed to, to the normal functioning of democracy in their country and not just against de- democratic practices in their churches. And right. that's what I think is happening now. Right. So r- fueled by negative, fierce negative reaction to cultural changes they don't like, attracted to authoritarian solutions because they've lost confidence in democracy and they're mobilizing now politically in a way that threatens democracy. That's my argument.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what you described is really kind of been going on for, you know, 30, 40 years in evangelicalism, but it's kind of slowly progressed uh, to the, to uh, a greater degree where, you know, the reactions are stronger, uh mm-hmm. The uh, changes are, are are more gay marriage. All of a sudden, oh, we have to react to that. Um, you know, the 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 demonizing of of liberals and democrats and the other side, et cetera, just gets worse and worse. Is is this is this what you're you're, you're yeah. describing? Yeah,
2: yeah, Um And I actually show in the book that uh, that you can see negative reactions to modern changes on the part of traditional Christians as far back as the early modern world. right. Um, you can see it in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. It,
1: yeah, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not a new phenomenon. phenomenon. You can yeah. see it
2: in different countries. Right. Um, but I would say, yes. So, you know, the Supreme Court says, oh, by the way, principals and teachers, you can't lead school-sponsored prayers, right? You can't do that. Yep. 1962. Right. Oh, all of a sudden, they're trying to take God out of the schools, right? Right. Uh, civil rights movement uh, immigration from the global South, uh, the feminist movement, Mm -hmm. abortion, you name it. Right. Um, and I would say the, the, the continued defeat of the traditionalist side in battle after battle, state after state issue after issue, um, uh, the constant kind of regrouping to make a new counterattack and losing again. Yeah. I think it somehow has reached a critical mass and, and the, the reactionary spirit is more angry, more fearful, and might even say less in touch with reality than ever before.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Right. I mean, really, it's a, re, a rejection of having a, a true pluralistic society where, you know, you don't have to be the same religion. You don't have to be, uh, you know, just like us in, in the church or whatever. And, and just also... Uh, And and my circles also was always coming up with um, an explanation that God really wants us as Christians to take control or take have have uh, undue influence on the government and our country. And that's what really we're trying to do is because that's God's will. So they've got the will of God behind them in all this, all all this, uh, all these initiatives. So what about some examples? From recent history, um, besides the U.S., where has this we're going to call it arc authoritarian reactionary Christianity? Where has this arc showed up in recent history? And I know you wrote about Germany and uh, the the quasi Christianity of Nazism, and also I'd like to touch on Russia because that's in the news a lot.
2: Yeah. I have two um, longer term chapters where I talk about France in the 19th and early 20th century and Germany mm-hmm. leading up to the Nazi era um, that looked a little bit different in those two countries. But in both those cases, it was a fierce negative reaction to everything modern, which included urbanization and industrialization. and oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, the emancipation of the Jews to a place of civic equality. Um, so there's an economic dimension of this. Um, that should not be missed i don't emphasize it as strongly in my book in the in the modern chapters but but the idea that um there are people kind of romanticizing a mythic past of small town christian rural um homogeneity dominated by christians that was in france that was in germany um and now Some of those same notes are struck, and I I study five countries in the modern section, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Brazil, and the U.S. Right. And in each of them, I think you can see authoritarian reactionary Christianity. Um, Like Putin, part of how he has uh, held on to power for 23 years has been to say, I, Vladimir Putin, am the defender of Christian civilization in Europe.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: I am I mean Putin think about his behavior right I Vladimir Putin am defending Russia against the West I'm defending orth- the Orthodox Church against liberalism I'm defending all of us against those awful gay people who are trying to force their values on on our children and um Putin was lionized by American evangelicals like Franklin Graham until the invasion of Ukraine full scale in 2022 and now, a lot of the positive attention has gone over to Viktor Orbán in Hungary, but but what they have in common is just picture this: and is I am the strong man who doesn't who doesn't limit my I don't limit myself within the boundaries of democracy because we're in a civilizational struggle, right, to defend Christian values and Christian religion against right. all right. that, and I'll, I'm the one to do it. I alone can fix it. You you,
1: yep, sounds familiar yeah no, no i mean it's like yeah but you're, you're saying you're that they're defending christianity they're this like it's getting out of hand but we, we i'm i'm the one that's going to bring it back and this is what people want they at, at, at least a lot of people do devoted christians a lot of them want to have christian christianity in uh uh paramount and in every sphere of life and they just um, and, and if they, if they do, uh, tolerate other religions, their goal really is to convert them or you know <laughs> use them in some way. So, you know, one uh, way to
2: think about this, Michael is like people who are used to being in charge have to share power now.
1: Yeah.
2: So you've got atheists running for office and you've got secular folks teaching in universities as well Right. As folks. And, and you've got media offerings that don't reflect your values. and, and, it's a pluralistic society with people of lots of different skin tones and religions and values. And a lot of people are very, are very uncomfortable with that. And they might be willing to tolerate that diversity as long as they could resume control. That, would right. be okay. yeah, well, that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah. So just
1: touch, touch on Germany just a minute. I mean, you know, Hitler obviously wasn't a real Christian, but he used Christianity in some way. What, what did he do?
2: did. I was able to show in the chapter that for about 80 years before he came along, there had been a kind of a romantic quasi-Christian movement that had all of these elements that I've been describing, like romantic about what they called blood and soil, the connection to the land, Mm -hmm. uh, good sturdy peasant stock, romantic about about pre-industrial civilization, romantic about Christian Dominance, even if they couldn't quite agree on which Christians should be dominant, um, Romanic about a strong man ruler instead of all these squabbling uh parliamentarians, uh, Romanic about a, a, na- a nation stronger than all the other nations and able to exert its will. Um, and Christianity was remade to fit that vision.
1: I see, and anti
2: Semitism was part of it too. They taught some of these guys that Jesus was anti Jewish, he wasn't, not only was he not Jewish, he was anti Jewish. And oh really? So, so they remade Jesus as a kind of a, <laughs> an Aryan Germanic folk hero. Uh,
1: I got gotcha. you. No, was this before it was before uh, 1933 even? It was. It was before okay. 1933.
2: All right. So so people who were already believing this had gotten organized into different movements in some cases and they were ripe for the plucking when Hitler came to power. They were already they had already bought the ideology.
1: Yeah, and and, and from what it, what what I understand a lot of it was a grieve, uh, rooted in grievance from how they were treated after World War One and the economy was tanking and all that stuff, but that was,
2: that was part of the jet fuel in the period right after World War One. But what the chapter shows is this uh, romantic utopianism about a past right. that we would like to recover goes back before World War One, goes into the 19th century.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, another really interesting thing his- of the history on this is that. You cite this guy named Waltzer who argues that there's uh, three successful, there were three successful secular revolutions, Israel, um, India, and Algeria. But they, within like a couple decades, they changed from being a secular revolution to more of a fundamentalist religious uh, mindset or worldview. And I want to talk about, I want to ask you about that, how, how that happened in Israel since Israel is in the news these days.
2: Yeah. Um, Israel, you know, founded out of the ashes of the Holocaust, though there had been folks uh, gradually moving into the old land of Israel for, for decades beginning in the, well, for a long time, but especially beginning in the late 19th century. Um, But the original, the founders of the modern state of Israel were, um, they were secular for the most part. They were labor-oriented. They were essentially uh, socialist Zionists. Um, okay. <laughs> they wanted a homeland for the Jewish people. They believed that the traditional Jewish religiosity um, was not helpful for a modern state, and they wanted to kind of bracket it and not have it be central to the state. So Walzer, who is Jewish, says that the the original founders from 1948 Uh, were secular Zionist uh, revolutionaries, you might say, and they built a country. This was Was the Labor Party.
1: Was this Ben-Gurion? In that uh, era, that's right, yeah. 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 Okay, all right.
2: Um, And, but that developments after 1967 and 1973, the two wars, um, among other things, when Israel uh, defeated its adversaries in 67 and occupied uh, Palestinian territory, that was had been set aside for a Palestinian state and then mm-hmm. began settling it with hundreds of thousands of settlers. It, it took, Walzer says, it took a certain, generally a certain kind of person to wanna go where they weren't really wanted and to even do things that, that generally are understood to be against international law. And so he talks about the kind of tough settler, um, the settler folks who went into the uh, occupied territories And some of these were secular folks, but a lot of them were religious Zionists. They were Jewish religious Zionists. They believed that taking the whole of the land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean was Israel's birthright from God. So from 1967 forward and accelerating gradually in the decades, uh, more and more of the population of Israel has become either ultra-Orthodox or kind kind of settler militant. Okay, And and but there's also plenty of people who have the older vision, who are secular or who are more. uh, They're not really militant in that way. They want peace with the Palestinians. And so Israel has been a very divided society for a while. And that was what was what the news was coming out of Israel before recent events. Right. The protests in the streets over the what Netanyahu's government was doing. Right. Um, So one might say that Netanyahu and his cabinet in this last round. Represented a kind of authoritarian, reactionary yeah, right. Judaism or Jewish vision, right?
1: Yeah, right? yeah, because he um, went really far to the right, and he he brought on a, a apparently brought on some questionable characters into his government for you know, sure, outright yeah. bigots, etc. You know,
2: right? Yeah, so so that helps to helps us understand what's happening now because that kind of cabinet has had people in it who have been. I think intentionally provocative and inflammatory of Palestinian sensitivities, oh, okay, uh, in the West Bank um, and also I- at the uh, in the very sensitive area around the Al Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So those yeah, those those things uh, really had an impact, and this was just in the last I think since the last what in the early the first of the year, right? That these. Yeah. Um, you know, you, like
2: thousands of people going to the area up on the temple mount that that was understood to be reserved for muslims you know that if you visit jerusalem as i have a couple times there's an area for the jewish community at the bottom of that uh, wall and an area for the muslim at the top muslim community at the top of the temple mount where the al Aqsa mosque is and it's a very sensitive area and the way peace is kept is everybody stays in their spot but but there have been people in this cabinet who've been who have been kind of uh, parading up there just to, you might say, to create a provocation.
1: Right, right. Now that's, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's very interesting and, um, uh, you know, concerning when you hear something like that. I mean, so, all right, what about how does Christian Zionism play into this? Because obviously, yeah. all of a sudden, not only are there Jewish people who are more settler- uh, motivated or religious, you know, have some religious overtones, but the Christian right. And, and the U S especially has just, just, you know, dove in and supported Israel for their own reasons. So what, what about that?
2: Uh, it's, it's, it's a awful, awful example of Christians doing some really questionable theology and, and having some really disastrous political consequences. Basically, the backstory here is at a broad level, Christian sense of identification with the, the Holy Land because of, you know, reading the Bible all these years. Right. You know, we we know all these locations and we sense um, we have a sense of, um, oh, this is precious territory. This is holy. Land. Right. 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 Um, but then you also have the people who read the founding of the modern state of Israel in uh, apocalyptic terms as ushering in the events of the last days. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of those folks uh, have also believed that or acted as if Israel reclaiming all of the territory of their historic homeland between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, the biggest extent, uh, is part of God's will. In other words, Palestinians have been invisible in this story. Right. So yeah, it, it's a very powerful, prophecy, k-
1: prophetic that's prophecy, right, prophetic <laughs> words that. Are, are being fulfilled in this uh, Israel yes. coming, coming and creating a new nation. Yeah,
2: that's right. And so the idea that Palestinians would share that Holy land just didn't compute. It wasn't part of the story. So um, now the fact that the end of the story for most Christian Zionists is Jesus comes back on the Mount of Olives and everybody right. converts. Um, right. Yeah. That's a little inconvenient, but, but the, but the the impact of it is many Christian Zionists who are who are reading this story have been very hard line in support of very hard line uh, Israeli policies. So it's like they're living in a mythic, apocalyptic world, but their policy, the policy implications of living in that world are really bad for the people who live in the actual territory right now.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um I, I think the the phrase that comes to me in, in these situations is the ends justifies the means. So you've got people who claim to follow Jesus in this case, <laughs> who taught us to love our enemies, but because this is part of the prophetic will of God, well, you know, and this is gonna, you know, usher in the return of Christ. Well, we can do these things, you know, these other things that are you know more hardline and more retributive. Uh, because of that, I mean, maybe they don't say that out loud or think that, but that seems to be what's going on.
2: I would say ends justify the means thinking is growing in the part of the Christian community that we're talking about here, I mean, yeah, and right. not just there, not just on this issue,
1: right? So, all right, since we have this Israel-Hamas this terrible war going on uh, with Israel and Hamas, just just and you're a Christian ethicist, so you know what do you what are your thoughts on on a Christian response to this war.
2: Um, Christians should, should be on the side of, uh, peace and freedom and dignity and justice for every human being and every Mm -hmm. group. Yep. Um, the original UN plan was that, uh, the new state of Israel and a Palestinian state (coughs) would share that territory. Um, that, you know, uh, in the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, we should still have that dream. Um, how to negotiate the exact territorial um, contours is a matter for the diplomats. But um, uh, there there have been a lot of missed opportunities to make peace. Some really near misses. Yeah, um, I would say a long history of of violence and counter violence of of um, uh, insult and counter-insult and growing hatred um, and the radicalization of a part of both populations, Palestinian and Israeli, um, is a fact. And I would say that Hamas represents an especially radicalized vision that committed atrocious mass murder and every other kind of war crime a couple of years ago. Um, And that those crimes should be named for what they are absolute atrocities, uh, that can have no justification. Um, but that if the, if the answer by Israel is to bulldoze Gaza under rubble, um, without sufficient care for the well-being of civilians, that is also not okay. Right. Um, so, so we need to be supporting, um, peace and dignity and justice for all and listening to the peacemakers who are already on the ground on both sides who have relationships who are trying to help people dig out from their radicalization and move in a more constructive direction and that's what we should be pushing for
1: right yeah it's very sad i mean it just seems like there's a you know a war crime happens and then the response is another war crime and it's just (laughs) uh, it's it's been going on like this for so many years but it's very complex uh political situation and 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 I think, you know, just having this kind of conversation about the background and, um, you know, the historical uh, events that happened that led to this really helps people to understand it and also come up with a, a better way to respond to it rather than just a retributive way. Um, right.
2: Yeah. And just kind of being loyal to one side is not adequate. I mean, even just in terms of Christian ethics, because of the value and worth of all people. Right. Right.
1: Yes. Right. And yeah. And and you, you can be you can uh, you can find a way to uh, be loyal to to, the, to anyone who suffers on both sides. And really. And that's what we need to do. I mean, we need to, you know, we we, we can't be one sided about it. Uh, that's the way I, I look at it. So I agree. Um, let's kind of pivot now. And. uh Talk about how arc author, authoritarian reactionary Christianity has emerged in recent years in the in, in the U.S. We've talked about it a little a, a little, but uh, particularly since 2015 16 during the Trump administration.
2: Um, I think that let's say that we already had reactionary spirit going back 50 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. And let's say we already had plenty of authoritarianism in uh, the Christian subculture. Mm-hmm. I think we can I think that's hard to, to deny either of those claims. Um, what what Trump did was to introduce openly anti-democratic, that is the rules of democracy, but also the norms of democracy. He routinely violated them from the very beginning of his first campaign. So he, he introduced an authoritarian element even in the process of capturing the Republican voters and then winning the White House and then being president.
1: So can you give some examples?
2: Um, well, in the book I talk about, um, there, there were scholars, political scientists who were talking as early as 2017. Watch out for, for example, whenever anybody um, uh, says that, that political opponents uh, are enemies of the country and don't really care about the country or whenever uh, threats of violence are introduced into public speech, right? Or whenever politicians pick out specific groups to be like scapegoated, right? As Trump did when he came down that escalator that very first day, right? Right. Or when the media is described as the enemy of the people, right? So from the beginning, he was violating democratic norms And then um, during his presidency, he I mean, he did enough things to violate democratic norms and possibly democratic laws that he got impeached first for the Ukraine deal. Right. Um, And then uh, and then, of course, for what happened after January 6th, Um, things really took off with the attempt to say that the election was rigged. And and then to, to challenge the results of the election and then finally the insurrection of January 6th. And the fact that he sat on his hands during January 6th that, you know, applauded the insurrectionists and didn't call them off and all of that. That's I mean, he's 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 been indicted for these things and we'll see what happens. But right. So let's just say um, Trump took anti-democratic authoritarianism and mainstreamed it in a way that um that hadn't been done in memory at least.
1: Right. So but he but he also played off of the grievances that evangelicals or you know re- the religious right had um and so his his anti-democratic statements or actions were really things uh, a, a lot of them were things that oh yeah, the uh, if that would happen, we'd we'd be okay for, with that because that would help our agenda.
2: <laughs> I think that um The norms of democracy, like, for example, uh, remember when he was asked, do you accept, do you pledge to accept the results of the election? Right. And he said, no, not necessarily. And then he didn't. Yeah, Yeah, right. Right. Uh, You know, or even just. I think
1: he also said, uh, if I don't win, it was obviously rigged. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Even before the election. Even
2: when he uh, essentially blessed the paramilitary group, the Proud Boys. Yes. All of that is, is boundary breaking. All of I mean, that is I mean, what happens in uh, autocracies, not democracies. Right. When the, when the militias come out, you, I mean, you're really in trouble, right? Yeah, right. So so I think Trump legitimized behaviors that had not been legitimized by the mainstream political candidates. Reagan didn't do things like that. Yeah. Or Bush didn't do things like that. Um, so um, and because he legitimized the previously unthinkable, it became thinkable. Um so yeah. he did play an indispensable role, but but the grievances and the authoritarianism um, in a sense were already there.
1: Yeah. And I think that when he was elected in 2016, you know, there was this um there's this buzz going along going around evangelical fundamentalist circles that oh, you know, this is a this is the will of God. This is what God, you know, some other guy over here prophesied this, that he would get, become president. You know, he's our man. He, oh, he, we know he's rough around the edges, but he's like our Cyrus. And in, in the in the uh, Old Testament who God used, even though he wasn't a believer. And so they just kind of like, oh, play right into it. And that's again, the ends justifies the means, even though that you see these 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 norms being broken. and. Pushing the envelope on all kinds of things, becoming more retributive, etc. A lot of unchristian attitudes and actions. It didn't matter, you know, because it was uh, fulfilling their agenda. Um, not yeah. everyone, of course, was on right. board with Trump, so we have to be fair about that. But that's l- largely what happened, right?
2: Yeah, and one of the the <laughs> one of the things that any thoughtful Christian must be able to account for is how could even today right now i saw a poll 77% of evangelicals say they will support trump if he's the nominee in 2024 yeah um so how could that be um and one answer is the republican plus evangelical marriage is now 50 years old right but but the other is i think my paradigm of authoritarian reactionary christianity actually works pretty well you don't have to be a nice person you don't have to really be a practicing believer you don't have to know where what's what in the bible if you promise people i will win your culture wars at last i will i will restore you to power everybody you're mad at i'm even more mad at everybody you would like to get back at i'll get i'm i actually do get back at them because i don't have any scruples and and any rules that might have hindered previous polite people from winning these battles i'm not going to worry about those rules In other words, authoritarian reactionary Christianity, right? You could be a vicious misanthrope, uh, with no conscience. But if you promise those things right now, there's a certain percentage of the Christian population that will hail you as God's man.
1: Right. Yeah. It's very sad, but it's true. Um, yeah. And then there's this attitude that, you know, eventually came out with the the 2020 election, um, you know, okay, yeah, right. Democracy is fine, but only if you win. <laughs> if you don't win, <laughs> uh, really, what matters most for us religious people and for you know Trump leading leading this movement is loyalty to the religious revolution that you know that we want, rather than democracy. I mean, I mean, how did that? How did that that pivot? To go from okay, he's our man, but now, now that he's lost, well, maybe maybe a lot of people just believe the, the, the boulder dash about you know the election being stolen, but I know a lot of people knew better, but why you know why do they still go and support Trump?
2: Um a democracy only works if people are if they consider themselves bound to accept the results of elections Mm -hmm. um but certain components that go with that is it really helps if you believe that the people on the other side also love the country and they're not evil but if you if you convince yourself that the people on the other side don't love the country they're actually secret enemies and they are evil and especially if you mix some theology in there that says, I know what God's will is. God is declaring that our guy will win. Then you get that layer of magical kind of theology on that too, you know? Um, Right. So, so if the, the voting machines give you numbers that you don't like, then you conclude that the voting machines were rigged. Um, You have to believe that because you've set yourself up that the other belief is unbearable. Right. Uh,
1: yeah, that makes sense. I right. mean, the yeah. the us versus them thing you said is really important because, um, in my experience, that that was always there in evangelical churches, and now years later, it's it's so much more predominant that the other side is like you said they're demonized so that it man if we actually lost this election you know, the country, we go to pot and (laughs) everything would be just, it's just untenable. We cannot, we, we cannot go there. And, you know, instead of having a a, a McCain attitude of, oh, Obama won and people saying, oh, the country's going to pot and McCain says, no, no, we're going to be okay. He's, 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 he's a good man. We disagree on policy, but you know, all of a sudden that's out the window.
2: Yeah. That, that I think, you know, think about, I mean Romney was the was the nominee in 2012 he had he had that attitude right right McCain was the nominee in 2008 yep um George W was the nominee in 2000 2004 um none of them would have transgressed these boundaries none of them did transgress these boundaries
1: right well and even Hillary Clinton gave a concession speech you know what the day or two after so <laughs> okay I lost <laughs> right um
2: Good. but if facts don't matter as much as Propaganda or ideology, um, you know. You think about the conspiracy thinking, the way that it has really taken off, QAnon, um, and of course, Trump is a cons- is a conspiracy thinker and has been his entire adult life. Um, so, so people have gone. Some people, not a majority of Americans, I'd say it's no more than twenty percent, but have gone around the bend to some place where reality is unbearable so they're believing a lot of fiction including the idea that if things were fair our side would always win right and, and trump is god's tribune in politics and stuff like that um it's an unstable and rather rather uh inflammable you know, mix to have in, in anybody's politics it's really right
1: so unfortunately if trump goes away <laughs> He's convicted and banished from politics. This is not going to go away, right? This is our, this is already baked in.
2: I think it is. I think the results of the 2022 midterm elections were interesting because there were little mini Trumps. Uh, Mm I talked about several of them in the the book, like Carrie Lake in Arizona and Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania a number of these mini Trumps lost and they lost, in some cases, pretty decisively. I think DeSantis was positioning himself to be the successor um, and may still be, but he seems to lack some some of the magic, whatever the magic is that makes this work for Right, Trump. right.
1: Yeah, he's not likable.
2: Is he? <laughs> not likable, you can't... Trump yeah, is
1: likable to some people, so... <laughs> to some
2: people and not enough for, for DeSantis. Right, right. But, but authoritarianism is not going away reactionary spirit is not going away and some of the hits on democracy itself now that the frontier has been breached that means new things are thinkable so yes the danger continues for sure. yeah that's
1: sad okay we got we got a little a little more than 15 minutes to go and i want to spend a lot of time more time on the solutions okay you know what what you can what we can do uh, and what christians can do who, who, who are actually seeing this or Want to influence their friends and neighbors, Um, and you bring up a couple things: uh, traditions. One of them is called the Baptist Democratic tradition, and the other one is the Black Christian Democratic tradition. And saying this, this you know, uh, even among Christians, we we have a history of loving democracy, and we're losing it. How can we get back to it? So, how would you answer that?
2: I like how you said that, Michael. We have a history of loving democracy. It's not all Christians. Right. Um, uh, In fact, I talk in the book about some Christians who've been showing for a while that they don't really want American democracy. They want something more like Puritan Puritan New England in 1690 or something, right? Or they want medieval France in 1200. But there are resources. And so I, I named three. One of them is the baptist democratic tradition and it isn't only the baptists it's all kinds of congregationalists and dissenters that you begin see emerge in england for example in the 16th and 17th century um they began arguing for um things that sure look like democracy long before liberal and secular theorists like john locke began writing their their work
0: okay
2: they said theocracy is bad because the state does not have the right, nor does it do well when it attempts to enforce religion. Mm -hmm. Right? They said um, the power should be diffused because human nature is sinful. You can't concentrate power in the hands of one person. Right. Um, They said people have rights because they're made in the image of God.
1: Right. So not including non-Christians,
2: including non-Christians. So first they were begging for their own rights. Please don't kill us because we do like adult baptism. Okay. Right. Um, but then they were saying, but also don't kill the, the Jews and and the Quakers and the Muslims and the atheists, because conscience, the right to freedom of conscience is is one of the highest human rights of all. Right. 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 So 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 they were the ones who began eventually saying, you know what we need? We need the state to get out of the religion business altogether. Mm-hmm. OK, we need the separation of church and state. Um so that the church is free, the churches, people are free to form churches that they believe in and, and the state doesn't harass them, but it also doesn't tax to support them. Um, and uh, the state has plenty to do, like <laughs> providing for the, for defense and uh, education. It's plenty to do. Uh, it doesn't need to be regulating religion. Right. Um, so so the Baptists, the Anabaptists, the Quakers, the, the the ones who had spent a lot of time uh, dying at, at stakes and stuff or being thrown into prison. They began to offer the first um, case for uh, for what ended up happening in our country, a, a, a country in which the government is not officially Christian, but it's not hostile to Christianity, in which there is religious liberty, and in which the, the, you might say, the moral atmosphere of the country is set by the people. Um, mm-hmm. And the government of the country is is actually led by the people instead of by the monarch. Um, so I I try to I say everywhere everywhere that Christians still have in their marrow this democratic sensibility, it's a resource for democracy.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay. You know, well, talk
2: about churches, you know, where like people get together and they form a church and they create a covenant and they write bylaws and they pick ministers and they, they run their own affairs and have done for hundreds of years.
1: But they, but you're talking about congregational polity in, in yes. churches, right? I am. Where Yeah. So that's more of a democratic, it's not just the, the pastor and the rubber stamp board. It's the, the whole congregation voting on things.
2: That's right. And, and the whole congregation deliberating on what we want to be as a people and, and and i guess what i what i'm trying to say is that is already there as a resource but we have to protect it right because even in a lot of congregationalist churches there's there is indeed the all powerful pastor now in the rubber stamp board right yeah
1: right no that's what my experience was even though i think my baptist church did have a congregational structure i believe but um but you also have the the issue of like theology Having to be <laughs> the statements of faith and everything, and not having uh, having no, no, non negotiables that are kind of strict, etc But that's another issue. But right. anyways, this is very interesting. You reminded me of Roger Williams when you started talking about right. this.
2: Roger Williams, he's a yeah. hero of this of this strand he, of thought that I'm talking yeah, about.
1: Yeah, he's a hero. uh He's you know he he left the Puritans to form the Rhode Island colony. And had a had some pretty radical ideas like compensating the Native Americans for their land, <laughs> yeah you know, as well as all the things you just talked about.
2: I've been reading in um, in seventeenth century uh, British history, and I'm seeing that the kings were very worried about these Congregationalist movements,
1: yeah, okay,
2: because they understood that Congregationalism had a democratic vibe to it. mm-hmm. If the people can govern themselves in matters of religion, why do they need a king? Yeah, and right. the, and, and the parliament, the, the growing parliamentary movement in the 17th century, um, had some of that. Like, hey, hey, you know, we know about forming communities and governing ourselves, and we want more of a voice in our own affairs. So, yes. um, so I'm saying that that is a resource. And so, one thing I'm saying is, if you have a congregationalist system, um, protect it. And think about using it as an opportunity to train people explicitly in the practices of democracy, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, writing constitutions and drafting bylaws and amending them and having intelligent discussions about issues and taking stands and voting and then staying in community, even when your side loses and all of that, right? right. Um, all of that is democracy in action.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the black democratic tradition I, I gives I give a chapter to it because because in America black people were disenfranchised from the beginning enslaved uh, black people have known from the beginning that what we have called democracy has been damaged by racism and um, and so some of the most inspiring pro democratic voices in all of our history are you know, like freed slaves like uh, Frederick Douglass.
1: Right, Douglass. Or
2: scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois or Mm -hmm. leaders like Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. um, or Fannie Lou Hamer who said, this is not truly a democracy until we have equal rights. Right. Then that would also mean it's not truly a democracy until everyone has equal rights.
1: Exactly, yes, right.
2: A multiracial democracy where everybody gets one vote, everybody gets one place at the table, Mm -hmm. the table is round and we all have a seat and the black uh democratic tradition often headquartered in the churches has been fighting for real democracy here for hundreds of years and that is a treasure and some of the writings and the voices coming out of out of the black churches are absolutely essential for us all to consider as we think about protecting our democracy now
1: right no it's a great example um and i think it always struck me um, in my evangelical experience that when I did encounter black churches, they were quite different. <laughs> yeah, there's a different flavor there, um, and they were all always more—I don't know—social justice oriented. Uh, they seemed to me much more uh, open, and and then, like you say, they had a strong sense of what was what was fair for all of society because of of their own experiences at, you know with injustice throughout history and slavery etc so
2: they're also not likely to be romantic about the great great old days of the past
1: exactly oh yeah right they no. yeah they don't think oh make america great again oh oh you mean like the jim crow era what are you talking about <laughs>
2: right they have a <laughs> counter history to the mythologized history of nostalgic white people that's you a very
1: good point yeah them
2: absolutely we need those we questions. don't
1: want to go backwards we want to go forwards come right. on guys yeah. right yeah so that's that's very interesting i mean how can i mean how can these these examples have influence on our society what can be done um
2: i i closed the book by by trying to retrieve the language of covenant um and to say uh and this is not my own idea covenant it was a was a concept from the bible uh that The Puritans picked up to describe their political and religious vision um, that is written into some of our constitutions, state constitutions in the US. Martin Luther King said, we need a new democratic covenant, a new democratic covenant. I remember, I think it was I.F. Stone who said during the civil rights years, either this country moves forward to like essentially a new democratic covenant in which everybody is included, or we're going to move backward into fascism. Wow. And that's, the I, I think, the choice that we really have. Um, and so I'm calling on Christians to make a covenant with their neighbors to, to, to defend democracy, to be committed to equal human rights and civil rights for all, to accept pluralism, to not have to dictate the values of everybody, um, to live out the way of life that we believe in without demanding that other people live out our way of life as well. Right. Um, To protect religious liberty, real religious liberty for all, and to honor freedom of conscience, and to be committed to the common good of the whole society. This project, this backward-looking project of authoritarian reactionary Christianity, I would say, is bad theology and bad politics. And so we have to consider it at both levels. It's it's bad ethics. It doesn't reflect love of God and neighbor. Um love your neighbor as yourself. How would we like to be treated if we were the minority group? Right, do unto others, yeah. Yes. I mean, how simple is that, right?
1: So what you just described, what I've envision is that if there's a a document, a case for you know Christian democracy, uh you know, Christian um perspective on democracy, and getting churches to covenant to agree to this because it's, you know, appealing to the teachings of Jesus, appealing to history, appealing to logic, appealing to, uh, you know, so, uh, justice for all, etc., some of the foundations of our country. Is there, is there anyone doing this? Is anyone saying, hey, here's a document, let's, let's talk to churches about this?
2: Um, I'm not aware of such a document. Uh, I'd be happy to to be in any conversation where it was being developed. I imagine yeah. there will be things in the upcoming election year where people will um, work on, you know, various kinds of documents. And in one sense, my contribution to the conversation is this book, you know, like,
1: right. Absolutely. You know,
2: yeah. saying, hey, let's do this. We can do better and we right. must do better. And, and so I hope that maybe some of the concepts that I've been able to name and to retrieve here can be part of a constructive Conversation in the upcoming year and years to come.
1: Right, right. Good. Okay. So um anything else you want to add that's that that you covered in the book that uh, we haven't talked about?
2: Um, I, I would I, I think I would want to leave people with hope. Um I think that 2020-21, especially the insurrection, was a real shock to most Americans. And and the the sense of never wanting to go there again is pretty strong and then in 2022 as i said some of the people who were who were nominated lost especially in swing states so that you know the six or seven states in our weird electoral college system that helps settle every election right a, a lot of the people the radical candidates they lost Yeah. which gives me hope for how the elections will be yep. administered in those states
1: mm-hmm.
2: so also Trump himself, there is some statute of limitations on Trump. He's not going to last forever. This will probably be his last election, no matter what, if he is the nominee. Um, So I'm asking us to summon ourselves to to defend democracy. (coughs) And there's good reason to think that we can do so, but we need to mobilize and not take anything for granted.
1: Right, right. No, I like what you said about being hopeful too. I mean, there are signs of hope, but then there's always, <laughs> we just took a big step forward and then all of a sudden it seems like we're taking a step and a half back or something. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's tough to, 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 to main, maintain some optimism about things, but uh, I think we have to do that. Um, I really appreciate your, uh, your case for this. This is a really good case folks for, um, you know, getting back to some of our democratic values, and especially uh, if you're a Christian, to embrace some of these things because of the uh, heritage, uh, the legacy of of, of Christians um, embracing democracy, and because of the teachings of Christ, and so forth. And I think uh, this really resonates with a lot of ex-evangelicals who've come out of the church, but also can resonate with evangelicals who are concerned uh and aren't part of that I don't know what did you say 70% who would
2: vote oh 77% right now say they will vote for Trump right
1: in in the republican party or the the church
2: uh 70 77% of evangelicals
1: oh wow that's amazing right that's right anyways um are you? Do you consider yourself still in the evangelical movement, but on, on the fringes, or what, no, what are you? No,
2: I think evangelicalism has has made so many wrong turns by now. Um, plus, they kicked me out anyway. So right. you know, I'm in the post-evangelical space, and, and that's where I belong, and that's cool. There's a lot of folks in that space, for sure.
1: Right. No, I agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. So, okay. Well, we are just about an hour in here. And this has been a wonderful conversation. So great to get to know you, David, and talk about your book. Folks, it's Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. And where can you find it? I assume on Amazon, of course. On Amazon,
2: uh, Barnes & Noble has it, uh, uh, independent bookstores. Uh, yeah, it's out. And you okay. can get audio, uh, ebook, or uh, print.
1: Well, you have audio now, too. Yeah, great. And out. do you have a website where you, people can learn more about you?
2: Yeah. Uh, DavidPGushi.com
1: davidpgushy.com. Okay, great. Thanks again, David. It's uh, great to have you on. And um, folks, until the next episode, enjoy responsibly.